If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to uh, turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. And uh, as you do that, I just uh, would like to, to say that I've been praying for you as a, a congregation, and I'm encouraged by the things that I, I hear going on here. I'm also uh, encouraged by what sounds like a really exciting opportunity with this, uh, this building swap. As someone who's uh, spent uh, his fair share of time thinking about facility issues and uh, finances around that and all those sorts of details, uh, facilities are about facilitating gospel ministry and uh, creating space so that ministry can happen and Jesus can be lifted up. And it can take an incredible amount of time to look into these things and figure out these details. And that it seems like the Lord might be opening a door for you to have a facility for expanded ministry uh, is really an exciting uh, opportunity for you as as a congregation. Now, as we uh, turn to... Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, I want to ask you a question. Do you ever find the Lord's Supper boring? Maybe I'm not supposed to ask you that since I'm a pastor. Uh, Maybe Pastor Cruz wouldn't want uh, me to ask that. Um, Maybe you don't know what to think when you see the elders uh, passing uh, the elements when the congregation celebrates the Lord's Supper. Uh, Maybe you're not super familiar uh, with church and the Lord's Supper, and it just seems all a little uh, ho-hum. Well, our text this evening is going to show us that the Lord's Supper is not only something wonderful, uh, but it's also something immensely practical and has uh, great practical import for your life uh, as a Christian. Really, I think the Lord's Supper is sort of like a table saw. Um, you're wondering, how on earth is the Lord's Supper like a, a table saw? Well, in one sense, the Lord's Supper is an incredibly dangerous thing, potentially. But in another sense, it's a wonderful instrument given by God to cut off the rough edges of our sin. And I hope that we'll see that tonight, how the Lord's Supper leads us to a greater devotion uh, to Christ. We'll look at 1 Corinthians 10, the first 22 verses, and we'll be looking at the church in the wilderness, the church under judgment And then the church at the table. So please read along with me. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape 
that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I, imp- I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, as we open uh, this text of scripture together, we pray that you would give us understanding. And Lord, that that understanding would uh, shape and call out our hearts to a greater uh, obedience and devotion to Christ. That we would set our hearts more fully upon Jesus, the one who is worthy of all of our worship. And so, Lord, we ask for your help, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's argument in our passage is built upon an important assumption that the Bible is one continuous story uh, telling of God's one plan through one people to rescue a world under the condemnation of sin. And though the Bible is divided into two major sections, our Old Testament and New Testament, they follow a single storyline. This is an important principle for us if we're to understand our Bibles correctly and if we're to trace Paul's argument here. Because the Old Testament anticipates what the New Testament reveals. The Old Testament records the story of God calling out a people through whom the Messiah, God's promised deliverer, would come so that he could save a sinful humanity. Now at that time in the Old Testament, God's people were largely identified with ethnic Israel. And these people looked forward. Our confession of faith speaks of the church in this era of history as the church under age, uh, as it awaited the coming of the Messiah. But significantly, while there are some differences between the church as it existed uh, under age in the Old Testament and the church as it exists in the New Testament, there has only ever been one people of God, one church. For the church in the New Testament, and indeed the church today, the Old Testament is our family story. And for this reason, as as Paul writes, uh, even as he's writing to a largely Gentile, a non-Jewish audience in Corinth, he can speak of the Old Testament Jews as our fathers. Now Paul begins our section by making a connection between his hearers and the story of Israel in the Old Testament. And when he speaks about our fathers, he's referring specifically to Israel's time in the wilderness uh, after God had delivered them from slavery uh, in Egypt. And Paul says, our fathers all shared in the same spiritual blessings that we do. They just did it in different spiritual packaging, if you will. That's Paul's point in verses uh, 2 through 4. 
Whereas the Corinthian church had baptism and the Lord's Supper, the church in the wilderness had experienced God's uh, blessings of baptism as they passed through the Red Sea, as we read about in Exodus 14 and 15. They partook of heavenly food as, as manna came down from heaven and as they drank from the water uh, of the rock which uh, Moses struck. These were gifts from God to his church as they lived in between the time of, of deliverance from slavery in Egypt and yet as they awaited entrance into God's promised rest. All of the people of Israel received from God these remarkable spiritual blessings. They'd experienced these things in uh, dramatic, powerful ways, and yet tragically, as the Old Testament records, with many of them, God was not pleased. But they were put to death in the wilderness. The book of Numbers tells us that only Joshua, Caleb, and those who were 20 years old uh, and younger uh, at the Exodus were able to enter the promised land. And Paul wants us to see how similar the wilderness generation is to the Corinthians and to the church today. This is because Paul sees them, this church under age, as an example to warn us. Though the wilderness generation had, had been able to see God's great acts of deliverance and they had shared in similar spiritual blessings as we do, yet they became objects of God's displeasure. Paul elaborates in verses 7 to 10, citing four separate incidents from the wilderness years in which God's people were subject to divine punishments. Verse 7 is a reference to the scandalous incident of the golden calf, which we read about in Exodus 32. Some of you will remember the story. Uh, God has heard the cries of his people Israel. He's brought them out of slavery. He's gathered them at Mount Sinai. He brings Moses up onto the mountain where he's going to uh, deliver instructions for how his people are to live before him. And as Moses is up on the mountain, what happens? Israel gets impatient and they begin to fashion a golden calf that they can use for their worship. And God's anger is, is kindled against this idolatrous people such that he says to Moses, he's going to wipe out Israel. He's going to start over with Moses. Only Moses intercedes on behalf of the people of Israel and God relents, but he still sends a plague uh, that, that uh, wipes out many of the people. In verse 8 of our passage, Paul refers to another wilderness scene. This time it's the gory story found in Numbers 25. Men of Israel were joining themselves sexually uh, with uh, the people of Moab and they began to worship Baal, uh, Moab's god. And the chief offenders were put to death by capital punishment. And then we read that a plague claims the lives, lives of thousands before the evil is purged from Israel's midst. And then in verses 9 and 10 of our passage, Paul highlights uh, the guilt of the church in the wilderness as they put Christ to the test by their impatience and as they complained against God's ways. In each case, God's judgment was exercised against the people and many died as a result because their desires were evil. So we've got idolatry, sexual immorality, impatience, grumbling. These were all manifested in the church in the wilderness. And because of this, though they had been baptized and they had eaten of God's food, these outward benefits were not sufficient to protect the people against God's judgment. Now these accounts uh, are not just from the Old Testament. These accounts are not just sprinkled into our Bibles to sort of make the Old Testament interesting uh, for us. 
Paul repeats himself to emphasize for us that these stories of Israel's sin and God's judgment, they were written as an example for the church today. For us, as the church exists in between the period of of Jesus' first coming and between the period of, of Jesus' second coming. So what are we to take from these examples? Well, Paul tells us in both verses 6 and 12, he says, Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. In verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The lesson that Paul wants his readers to take from these stories is that they shouldn't presume that a follower of Christ might engage in just sort of spiritual coasting. Uh, You know what coasting is. Uh, Some of uh, the students in uh, the congregation might be intimately acquainted with coasting, right? It's when you're in school and you do just enough homework uh, to get by. You rely on the minimum amount of, of effort. That's coasting. And spiritual coasting happens when we drift along. We're we're trusting in certain assumptions that we have about God. Uh, We're trusting in our church membership, perhaps. Or we're trusting in in thinking that we have the right answers. We're reformed, after all. Think of my years as a a teenager and a college student uh, growing up in the church and growing up in Christian schools. Uh, There was a spirit of presumption among my peers that said we could claim the benefits of being a Christian, yet we could live however we wanted. There was a sense that we were standing, that we were okay, we were just fine. But we weren't. Paul's warning to these relatively new Christians is that Christians need to be watchful. We need to take heed. Temptation to sin will come from outside of us. It will come from the influence of others. But it will also come from within us, from our own evil desires. Life in a sinful world will always involve temptation. And sometimes even, we will succumb to that temptation. Even as Christians, sometimes even grave temptation. And yet, Christians are called, Paul says, to be on guard against temptation. To resist it, to endure it, to flee from it. The exhortation of watchfulness against temptation in verse 13 naturally leads to the command in verse 14 to flee from idolatry. It's helpful for us to consider just how relevant a command this would have been for the people uh, that Paul was writing to in Corinth. Uh, One scholar described first century Corinth as uh, New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas all mixed into one steaming hotbed of vice and immorality. Doesn't sound very good. This port city, it was a large city. It was home to a variety of pagan uh, uh, temples to Athena and Aphrodite and Apollo and others. And so the member of this fledgling church, only a couple years old at this point, they would have been pressed on every side by idols. And these idols, they weren't just sort of some side hobby or some appendage to cultural life in Corinth, but these idols were, were mixed into the very fabric of social and commercial life in Paul's day. This helps us understand why Paul just spends a couple of chapters right before our section discussing a controversy in the Corinthian church about the permissibility of eating meat that was used in pagan sacrifice. There he's dealing with the type of situation where a a Corinthian Christian, maybe he's eating a a hamburger, suddenly becomes uh, made aware that that cow was sacrificed to Aphrodite or some other god. Well, in these verses, Paul's dealing with a slightly more immediate ethical question. Suppose you were a a Corinthian 
businessmen in Corinth. And you're meeting up with some uh, clients in the city uh, to confirm a business deal. And just as the lunch is about to conclude, uh, one of your, your colleagues uh, says to you, we really want this venture to go well. Right, this is a, a big deal. We need to close the deal. Uh, so after we wrap up here, let's just uh, stop by the Temple of Athena, uh, the goddess of wisdom, offer up a quick sacrifice just to make sure that everything's going to be okay. Uh, the average Corinthian, this was a no-brainer, right? Why not? That's, that's how we do things around here. In Corinth, there were temples to all sorts of, of, of gods and goddesses, and to not participate in that sort of thing uh, would be to, to have people look at you strange, to raise an eyebrow, it's sort of um, looks that our students get from their peers, perhaps, if they say they're not sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend, right? What do you mean? I don't understand. Everyone's doing it. These Christians in Corinth would have been under immense pressure to conform or capitulate to these idolatrous practices all around them. Practices that they themselves likely came out from. And it seems quite likely, given the time that Paul spends on it, that some of them likely had succumbed to the pressure, or at least that they were being seriously tempted to do so. I think some of you, uh, perhaps... Uh, I would suggest many of you know something of this pressure to conform. I doubt that any of you have been invited to the Temple of Aphrodite recently. I'm not aware of any such place in Kalamazoo. Uh, but our day and age has, of course, its own modernized sets of idols. If an idol is anything that we set our, our affection on or our, our, our love upon more than the God of the Bible, uh, then, then idols can be not just for uh, um, other gods of, or gods of other religions, but it can be anything. It can be money or sex or power or politics, family, comfort, race, right? These things can become idols when they become the object of our, our hope, the source of our joy, and the reason for our existence. And so the command to flee from idolatry is one very much that we need to hear today. Now, Paul makes this appeal to us, however, in a very striking way. He's going to make an argument to support his exhortation to flee from idols, and he's going to do it by appealing to the Lord's Supper, of all things. In verses 16 and 17, Paul's reference to the cup of blessing and the bread that we break are to the Lord's Supper. Now, as a congregation tonight, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I want to ask, why does Paul bring up the Lord's Supper here? How does Paul see the Lord's Supper as part of his argument to help the Corinthian Christians flee from idolatry? I find Paul's uh, tactic here very fascinating, not only for how it can change the way that we think about the Lord's Supper, but also because it has the capacity to help us as believers in our fight against sin. Paul sees something dramatic, something powerful happening when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And yet we don't always think this way. Admittedly, from the outside, the Lord's Supper can seem odd, maybe a quaint tradition of the church. But Paul tells us in these verses that it's much more than that. That when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's an act of participation. It quite literally is an act of fellowship with Christ, with Jesus. When we eat the bread and drink the wine which Jesus gave to his church, it's an act of communion and spiritual intimacy as we partake in faith by the Spirit. And in the Lord's Supper, Jesus, raised from the dead, now ascended into heaven, he invites his spiritual siblings to pull up a seat at the family table. And to eat with him. We no longer relate to him as, as distant worshipers paying homage. 
But he invites us to come as brothers and sisters whom he has ransomed by his death and resurrection. Paul's point in the Lord's Supper is uh, that we never do it as, as sort of discreet, detached individuals. Whenever we eat and drink in faith, we experience a vertical communion with the Lord Jesus as our spirit communes with his. But there's also a horizontal communion which we experience with one another. The Lord's Supper involves a real spiritual communion or fellowship with all of those who participate. Now, I want to pause for a minute uh, to speak to those of you here this evening, maybe who are not Christian or perhaps who are new Christians. Because the Lord's Supper, as we'll celebrate this evening, uh, may seem strange to you. And perhaps uh, you have uh, some questions about that. But I want you to see that the Lord's Supper, which we'll uh, celebrate, is a picture of why we think it is such a great thing to be a Christian. Because as Christians, we believe that the aim of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection was so that we who were his enemies might now become his friends, might be invited to eat and drink with him at his table. The Lord's Supper, you see, is is a reminder to us as Christians that Jesus has rescued us from the condemnation that our sin deserves, and he invites us to enjoy communion with him instead. By contrast to communion with Jesus, though, There's also such a thing as communion with demons. This is Paul's point in verses 18 to 20. Once again, appealing to the Old Testament, Paul argues that when the church was in the wilderness and offering sacrifices on the altar to God, these sacrifices were an act of communion with God. So think perhaps of the peace offering in Leviticus 3. An animal was uh, sacrificed on the altar uh, by the priest and the worshiper. The fat was offered uh, to the Lord and then they would uh, eat a meal in the place of worship. And there it signified that now there was peace, there was communion between the worshiper and God. The principle that Paul is establishing here is that the worshiper has fellowship with the worshipped through the act of sacrifice. And so, when someone makes a sacrifice to another god, they have fellowship with or they uh, participate with those other gods. Not that there are other gods, Paul's quick uh, to say, but the one who offers sacrifice to idols eats and drinks with the demonic forces that are situated behind the idol they worship. So to worship idols is to commune, Paul says, with demons. So Paul is saying when you eat and drink uh, the wine of the Lord's Supper, you have fellowship with or you have communion with the Lord Jesus. But when you worship idols, you have fellowship with demons. And there's a a fundamental uh, incongruence between doing the one and doing the other. Perhaps the example of Nellie Bart will help make this point stick. Nellie Bart was married to one of the most famous theologians of the 20th century. Her husband was uh, Karl Barth. Perhaps you've heard of him. He was famous for his opposition to uh, Hitler and his critique of theological liberalism. Uh, He was a man who was revered by many for his towering intellect and his theological acumen. But Nellie Barth burned with jealousy toward her husband. And if you were in her shoes, I think you would uh, despise the famed professor of theology also. Because when Karl Barth had been married to Nellie for 13 years, he fell in love with Charlotte von Kirschbaum. Now, the illicit relationship that began was wicked enough, but eventually, Charlotte was trained to be Karl's personal secretary. 
Carl then moved her into the family home where his adulterous relationship with Charlotte continued. So at family dinners, Carl, the great theologian, would sit with Charlotte to one side of him and Nellie to the other. For over 30 years, Carl Bart lived in a home with his wife and his mistress. Bart described the situation as the least imperfect situation. Nellie, who suffered the shame and embarrassment of her husband's brazen infidelity, would have described the situation, I am sure, in much stronger terms. Now we hear that, and we think Carl Bart's behavior is offensive. Here is a man who is taking the love, the devotion, the fidelity that he owed uniquely to his wife. And he not only sinfully shared these things with someone else, but he thought it was okay to bring his mistress with him to the dinner table. To say, in effect, while I said I love you, Nellie, I've decided I also love Charlotte. And since it'd be wrong for me to leave you, and since I cannot leave Charlotte, I'm going to pretend that I can love you both. Now, in reality, Carl could not have a real relationship with his Nellie while he was flaunting his faithlessness. His shocking betrayal of Nellie and his marital uh, vows was provocative. It was loveless, and it was flat-out evil. And this is exactly the Apostle Paul's point. As Christians, when our hearts get entangled with idols and then we come back to the Lord's Supper, we're like Karl Barth. On the one hand, we're coming to sit down with our true spouse, but on the other hand, we're attempting to, to drag our idols, drag our mistresses with us to the table. And when we allow these idols to capture our hearts in worship, whether it's in a temple or whether it's on our tablets, we bring them with us to the table. But this cannot happen. We cannot truly have, have fellowship with Jesus and fellowship with the demonic at the same time. If we'll not strive to cut off our communion with false gods, then Christ will cut us off. This is Paul's stern warning in verses 21 and 22. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So Paul ends this part of his argument with these two powerful rhetorical questions ringing in our ears. And the answer is, of course that we can't. It would be senseless and suicidal to provoke the Lord to jealousy because of who he is. He's God. We're not. Just ask the church in the wilderness. They did provoke the Lord to jealousy. And as we saw, what was the result? 23,000 dead in a single day, destroyed by poisonous snakes, mowed down by the destroyer. God will not be mocked. God is a rightly jealous God. Like Nellie Bart, who could rightly be outraged that her husband would share what was rightly and exclusively hers with someone else, in a similar way, God will not laugh off the sinful act of our sharing our worship with another. But you see, unlike Nellie, God's not trapped and forced to smile and bear the unashamed insult upon his worthiness to be loved and worshipped when we bring our lovers to the table. It's a sober warning for us as we come to the Lord's Supper. We're not just checking off a box. We're engaged in a real act of spiritual communion through, Christ, through the Spirit with Christ in heaven. Now, typically, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, um, the pastor will 
uh, who's administering it will say something like, if you are going to participate, we ask that you be a, a professing or a communicant member. This means that you've professed your faith in, in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've joined yourself formally with Jesus a church, right? This is a condition for coming to the Lord's table because only those who have trusted in Jesus can have true fellowship or communion with him. But we also ordinarily say that you should abstain from participating if you're living in unrepentant sin. To be re- repentant means that in a specific way you've seen how you've gone against a God and his, his word, his, his ways, and you're sincerely, you're deeply sorrowful for breaking his commandments. And you're seeking to turn in his power back to his way of living. Let me just use three examples from our passage this evening. It means that while you tend to grumble and complain, God's opening your eyes to help you see what your grumbling and complaining actually is. It's, it's sin. It says that God hasn't been good enough to you. And so you're opening your Bible and you're trying to fill your mind with thoughts of God's goodness. And you're asking friends to pray for you and to help you put on thankfulness and put off complaining. It means that you begin to evaluate your pornography habit the way Jesus does. You want to be, you're grieved by it. You're, you're actively taking steps to leave pornography behind. It means that when God convicts you that you live with a sense of entitlement like Israel did when they put Christ to the test, that you're willing to confess this to the Lord because more than anything you don't want to displease him and so you plead with him to help you grow in in love and service toward him and toward other people now this is really important because the condition that Jesus sets on coming to commune with him at his table is not perfection it's contrition we all sin even as Christians right we continue to sin the question though is what is our posture toward our sin Do we love our sin or do we hate it? Do we hate our sin or do we hold on to it? Are we fleeing from sinful affections or are we moving toward them? The Lord Jesus eats with repenting sinners at his table. Repentance involves that God-given determination to say to your sin, you're not welcome here. For such a person, even if your sin uh, has been many and even if your sin is great, Jesus still wants you to come to his table. He says, come, come. The person who's unrepentant holds on to their sin. They can't bear to part with it. They've, they've given themselves over to idolatrous desires for sex and stuff and self and success. And so to come to the table while still willingly gripping hands with our sin, we're like Karl Barth coming to the dinner table with Charlotte. The obstacle to our coming to Christ in his table is not our sin. Jesus invites the needy sinner, come. The obstacle is that we don't want to let go of our sin. And as Paul speaks to the Corinthians, we dare to presume we can dine with demons and the Lord Jesus at the same time. And yet while Jesus is full of grace and mercy, anyone who presumes upon his grace and mercy puts himself or herself in grave spiritual danger. So friend, as we come to the table today, I want you to see that the Lord's Supper is a place to receive grace. But it's also a weapon to fight sin. For as we recognize the spiritual reality of what we're celebrating in the Lord's Supper, that we have now communion with God through Jesus, it forces us to make a decision about the idols of our hearts. Entertaining our idols is, is, 
in Congress with fellowship with Christ. Christ will not stand for it. The question is, will you? As we come to the table, a decision is being forced. An allegiance needs to be declared. We can't put off the decision. We can either forsake Christ, abandoning him in favor of our sin, or we can provoke Christ, pretending we can come to the table with our sin, or we can run to Christ, repenting of our sin. We, we, can't, we can't just say, I'll worry about it later. You see, the best way to shake your grip free of the idols that you love is to find something more worthy of love. But what could be more worthy of love than the promise of communion with the Son of God who loved you and gave his life for you? Lord's Supper is not just some tedious, boring thing that we do. The Lord's Supper is a spiritual howitzer that God has given to his people to fight sin. Our regular rhythm, week, week in, week out, month in, month out, of coming to the table, this is a massive sign from Jesus saying, Lay the sins that that you hold fast to behind and come fellowship with me. So Christian, I want you to see the sign tonight. Look to Christ as he's offered to you in the table to fight your sin and to flee your idols. But it's hard, you might protest, and yes, it is. But God is faithful and he provides the way of escape. And what's more, he doesn't expect you to cast off your idols on your own. He will help you. All you need to do is to cry out to him now. And so let's do that together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do confess that um, our hearts are wandering and often wayward. And Lord, they stick to creaturely things. And so Lord, as we come to the table, we confess our, um, our tendency, Lord, to wander, and we ask that you would help us to lay our sin, lay the idols of our hearts down, and in repentance, by the grace that you provide, run to Jesus. We pray, Lord, that as we come to the table, that you would help our hearts more devotedly be fixed upon him, that, Lord, we would not seek to hold on to our sin while worshiping Christ, but Lord, with, with the power that you give, we would be striving to put sin to death because we are so thankful for the fellowship that has been won for us through your son. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.